Well, please take your Bibles now and turn to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8, but this is the the last in a little, I guess, mini-series that we started a few weeks ago that really begins at chapter 50, verse 10. So we're going to start reading there this morning. So chapter Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10, and we'll read through 51, verse 8. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, our God, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray that as we come to sit under your word now, that sword would indeed be wielded by the Holy Spirit, that he would teach us great things about our salvation, that by this word we would be shaken, as we have already prayed, shaken from our remaining sin, that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, and by this means of grace we might now be compelled to follow him all the more closely, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of a section in which Isaiah has uh, paused, really, from his narrative to address his readers and to ask them to ask us whether or not we trust God 
and His promised Redeemer, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah has just given us the third of four servant songs that punctuate the latter half of this book. And these passages that are found in chapters 42 and 49 and 50 and 52, Isaiah tethers the gospel message that he has been preaching to the work of a coming Savior in whom all the blessings of God would be found. Isaiah is emphatic throughout his book, but especially in this latter half of his book, that there is mercy and grace to be found in God for everyone and anyone who cast themselves upon Him in faith and dependence. But he has also been emphatically clear that the reason that God can be so merciful and gracious to sinners is because of the work of this great servant of the Lord, in whom and through whom all the blessings of God are secured. This servant has become, it becomes clearer and clearer as we go through the servant songs, will come as a substitute for those who put their faith in him. He would come and be, as we could say, a, a representative agent, obeying where they have failed and bearing the punishment for their failure, taking the entire burden of salvation upon Himself so that we, by placing our trust in Him and being united to Him by faith, can simply now enjoy the blessings of God. It is, of course, as we have been saying, the promise of Jesus Christ. These passages, these servant songs foretell and anticipate what Jesus Christ would do when He came to earth being born to the Virgin Mary. But Isaiah, as a good preacher, as a faithful pastor, has paused now, and he has turned to his readers, and he has asked us that question that we find in chapter 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? It is the crucial question in all of this. Right? The work of the great servant of the Lord is nothing to you unless you hold to Him by faith. You don't receive the blessings of Christ's saving work simply by being near Him or associated with Him. You must lay hold of Him. You must, as Jesus says in John 15, you must abide in Him. But you remember our quote from E.J. Young? It's one of these quotes I would say to some friends earlier this week, that I say this quote so often that you will undoubtedly have memorized it by the time we come out of the book of Isaiah. And I will not be sad if that is the case. E.J. Young said, all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in, have their root and origin in, and are dispensed by Jesus Christ. At the same time, He is Himself the center of all of these blessings, and to receive them is to receive Him. For without Him, there can be no blessings. And so Isaiah has been urging us to receive Jesus, 
to not be close to Jesus, to not just know about Jesus, but to receive Jesus, to entrust ourselves to Jesus, to abide in Jesus. The Judeans to whom Isaiah was first writing, they're sitting in the darkness of the exile in Babylon. They're bearing the weight and the consequence of their continued rebellion against God, their continued rejection of God that had resulted in the withdrawal of His hand of blessing, and now they sit there bearing the curse of their sin. We know the story well, but just quickly, the world outside of the confines of biblical religion had seemed so alluring to the Judeans. Remember, this is the constant battle in the first half of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah preaching to his contemporaries, urging them to see the hollowness of the idols that they are going after. But to them, those idols were everything. The world outside of the confines of biblical religion was just so captivating to them. As they looked outside the boundaries of of Judah, they saw a world of politics and economics that was just so gripping. They saw a world of of diplomacy, a world that was so sophisticated, a world of international summits, a world of rubbing shoulders with power brokers, and and it seemed to just promise so much to them. Outside of Judah, they saw a glittering world, a world of of wine and women and song, and, and they saw it, and, and they said, this is good. It's the world that we, we want to, to live in. It was a glittering world that, that seemed to promise life and vitality to them. But as they found out so sorely in their exile, all of those idols promising life only ever delivered death and darkness. And all of it is really a grand metaphor for the condition that we all find ourselves in apart from God. And I think especially if we have grown up in the church but wandered away. The world outside of the church is a world that can, if we're honest, seem so alluring to us, just as it had to the Judeans. So often, we can hear the commands of God as restrictions on our behavior. And we look outside of the church and we see a world that just seems so free, free to enjoy themselves, free to pursue whatever their hearts desire. We see a world that promises riches and power and significance. And we know that so much of it, all of it, is self-centered. But there seems to be, perhaps to put it crudely, an, an honor among thieves. Yes, we know it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, but, but there still seems to be security to be found if only we run with the right pack. We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. It's really what we find described in those ten paternal appeals that we find in the first seven chapters of Proverbs. Remember we said that, that what makes those appeals so evocative and and gripping for us is the underlying acknowledgement of just how tempting the world can be. The father bidding his son not to leave the paths of righteousness, 
acknowledges to his son that there is something genuinely alluring and attractive about the world outside of the church, a world of pleasure, a world of seeming freedom. But the lesson of the Father is what is being borne out now in the lives of the Judeans. The Father warns in Proverbs 7 of going after the adulteress. And after he has listed all of the captivating temptations that she brings, admitting to his son that there is something captivating about her, he says to his son, but many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This adulteress, she she promises life to the fool to this young man. But the father says, if you go into her house, you will find that her basement is a morgue. It's what the Judeans knew as they were reading these words of Isaiah. But really, it's what we, what we all know, that the temptations which promise so much only bring us into darkness. But in all of this, Isaiah is emphatic, and he wants his readers to understand that as, as bad as all of this is, as dark as all of this is, as, as wretched as all of this is, there is still hope for foolish sinners who turn their backs on the promises of God. And all of it he has pinned to the work of the servant of the Lord. And it has been clear, and it will only get clearer as we go on that that servant would be the one who would come, and he would secure salvation for helpless sinners. He would stand in their place. He would obey where they have failed. He would bear the curse for their failure, and he would deliver them into a glorious new world, not twisted and contorted by sin and its effects, but a place of peace and joy and rest. But at the heart of the issue, is that these things can only be enjoyed by sinners if they lay hold of that servant by faith. It's the very heart of everything that Isaiah is saying. Will you fear the Lord and obey the voice of His servant? Or will you double down and try to dig yourself out of your sinful hole? Will you try to use Isaiah's metaphor walk by the light of the torch that you kindle. But of course, Isaiah's not just stopped with this question. As a good preacher and a faithful pastor, he knows how slow our hearts can be to believe. And so, he's given us three incentives here, three encouragements in which he has given us even more reason to cast ourselves in faithful dependence upon the Lord. In the first one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 two and three. He's encouraged us, you remember, to look back. He's encouraged us to look back and to see how God has dealt with sinners in the past. And particularly, you remember there, he, he, he drives our attention to Abraham and to see the grace and mercy of God shown to Abraham while he was an idolater dwelling amongst idolaters. And Isaiah is saying it is a model of how God deals with anyone and everyone who comes to him from the midst of their idolatry. In the second, in verses 4, 5, and 6, he's encouraged us, if you remember last week, to look inwards. 
to confront those deep longings of our hearts for a new world that is free from sin and free from the effects of sin. And he's encouraged us to hear the promises of the gospel that, that pinpoint target that desire, and he has urged us to hear of how that gospel speaks to that deepest, greatest desire of our hearts. But now, in this third encouragement, he lifts our eyes to look to the future. And he encourages us to see that the sure and certain knowledge that what God has said he will do is an anchor for our souls as we go through the storms of life. And the particular focus here is on the hope that is found in the knowledge of final judgment and the certainty that God will bring evildoers to justice and vindicate the people of God. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote, no one is truly persuaded that he belongs to God unless he has first recognized God's grace. No one will ever reverence God but him who trusts that God is propitious to him. In other words, no one will come to God seeking forgiveness unless he is first convinced that there is grace enough in God for him. No one will come to God in faithful dependence unless he is convinced that God is propitious towards him. That is to say, unless he is convinced that the wrath of God against him in his sin has been turned in Christ into favor towards him. No one, Calvin says, will come to God unless they believe that God is favorably disposed towards him. But it's also true that no one will come to God and lay themselves upon him in faithful dependence unless they believe that he is powerful enough to save them. Now, that was one of the great discouragements that the Judeans were facing. Remember, the Babylonians were the great powerhouse of the day. They were virtually untouchable in the extent of their power. But if you have ever looked at a, a map of the Babylonian Empire, you see this great swathe of land that they controlled, a strategic swathe of land. Their rule extended from the Arabian Gulf up through Iraq and Iran, covering Syria over through Turkey to touch Europe, and down through Palestine and Jordan and into what is now Saudi Arabia. But the extent of their power and their control was incredible. They sat in a, on a piece of ground that meant that they controlled global shipping. It meant that they controlled cross-continental trade, right? We've all heard of the Great Silk Road, this great route that spanned from China to Europe. You know where the Great Silk Road had to go? Right through the Babylonian Empire. They controlled it. They controlled the flow of goods in all of the earth. Your most powerful rival, the Egyptian Empire, during the reign of the Babylonians was kept confined in North Africa by their dominance. Throughout history, these northern and southern empires had wrestled for control, coming up through 
that fertile strip of land between the Mediterranean and the Arabian desert, constantly jockeying for position, but, but not while the Babylonians were in control. Egypt was locked in place as they controlled the only land bridge between Africa and Europe and Asia. They were untouchable, it seemed. An absolute behemoth of an empire that seemed to be able to turn the fortunes of the earth according to its will. And here you have the Judeans, a conquered people in a foreign land. What reasonable expectations did they have that they would ever be vindicated? Now, the Babylonian invasion was from the Lord. Isaiah has been clear about that. But the cruelties that the Babylonians brought to bear on the Judeans was, you understand, sin. The Judeans were sitting in exile because of their sins, but there was no doubt that they had been greatly sinned against in the cruelty of their oppressors. But even if now they cast themselves upon the Lord, even if now they heed Isaiah's gospel calls to them, and they, and they turn from their sin, and they cast themselves in faithful dependence upon the Lord, what reasonable expectation was there that they would ever see Recompense come upon the Babylonians for the crimes that they had committed against the people of God. They were untouchable. I think we know something of that hopelessness as well, don't we? Not the same, but something. We live in a world, in a society just now, where it seems as if the powerful and the influential are untouchable. We just switch on the news and we see privileged classes that are able to commit, it seems, even high crimes and misdemeanors without any real threat of consequence. We live in the West in a world in which the powerful and the influential are able to come after the church with little opposition, and even increasingly so gaining support and accolades for opposing biblical religion. And sometimes we might ask ourselves, well, what reasonable hope do we have that they will ever face recompense for their crimes? If they can control the halls of justice, then how on earth will they ever be subject to justice? But here God comes now, and he's, He has encouraged His people to look back, and as He has encouraged His people to look in, now He lifts the heads of His demoralized people, and He says to them, look to the future. And remember that a day is coming, a last day, and on that day, all will be made right. On that day, the everlasting righteousness of God will be put on manifest display, and His salvation will be secured and delighted in by all the generations of His people, by us, by the Judeans by everyone in between, by everyone before and everyone after. Isaiah says to them, listen, a last day is coming when all of the church triumphant from Adam until that day, whenever it will be, will see themselves vindicated before the throne of God. And that day, 
On that last day, Christians from all of history will stand and watch as those who have opposed them and treated them unjustly and abused them and sinned against them are called to face divine justice for their crimes. On that day, the powerful and significant who have used their positions not in the service of God and His people, but rather in the service of self, in the service of idols, in the pursuit of earthly accolades and power, they will be called to stand before the throne of God, and they will be shown to be as worthless and insignificant as they truly are. That's the imagery that Isaiah uses here. The moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. It's the promise of a great turning of the tables. The people of God presently reviled and rejected, but then vindicated, then honored in that world to come. Their detractors now honored, but then receiving the harvest of the evil that they have sown. It's the day which Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25, talking of His return, His second advent, as we call it. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the wicked, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. On that day, when Christ returns, the people of God will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, welcome to enjoy the full benefits of their salvation, welcome to sit down in green pastures and rest by still waters. On that day when Christ returns, on that last day, all of those saved by the grace and mercy of God shown to them as it was shown to Abraham as that first incentive spoke of, will receive the desires of their hearts that that second incentive spoke of. But our enemies, this third incentive tells us, will undoubtedly face the righteousness of God. And that confidence, that sure and certain future hope means, as verse 7 says, that we don't need to fear or be dismayed, but rather we can rest assured that the Lord of all the earth will do right. But notice who this promise is for. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Isaiah is clear this is a promise only for those who cast themselves in faith and dependence upon the Lord and His servant. 
Right, what Isaiah speaks of there is what Paul speaks of in Romans 3, verse 21, where he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The Judeans were by rights wholly unrighteous. Right? That is been made manifestly clear. They languished in Babylon because of their sin and unrighteousness. And, and to use David's phrase from Psalm 51, their sin was ever before them. And I heard somebody this week meditate upon that phrase in Psalm 51. And how they thought it meant that there wasn't a day in David's life when he did not remember his sin with Bathsheba. His sin was ever before him. And surely the Judean sin was ever before them. They might lie in their beds dreaming of the temple in Jerusalem, but they woke every morning to see a Babylonian society around them. Their sin was ever before them. But in all of the gospel promises offered to them, and specifically those promises fulfilled in the servant of the Lord, a new righteousness was offered to them. The good news of their sins washed away and them being reconciled to God. The good news of their old life of sin being put away and in its place a new life of righteousness, a life in which they did not chafe under the law of God as they had once done a life in which they did not see the law of God as being a restriction upon their behavior, but rather a new life in which they now delighted in that law and saw it as it is, life-giving and precious. Here Isaiah says to them, inviting them to believe the promises of the gospel that he has declared to them, encouraging them to give up their sinful self-reliance and cast themselves wholly upon the Lord. Isaiah says to them that in that new life, under the watch care of God, they can rest secure. They can give up fighting for themselves. They can simply be at peace, knowing that God, their King, will in the end make all things right. It's the promise to you this morning. The promise that you, unrighteous in your sin, can become righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise you have done, can have all of your sin washed away and replaced by the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you in the grace of God. The promise of the gospel for you, that regardless of what you have done in life, there is new life to be found in Christ, and all that you have to do to receive it is come to Him in faith and dependence. And the promise of the gospel is that in that new life, you will find a radical security. That in that new life, you will have a certainty of final judgment, and that knowledge will set you free from fear and dismay. Christian, do you know that security? As you abide in Christ, does the knowledge of the day of judgment give you security and peace in this present world? It ought to. Right? The knowledge that that day is coming, that day which is terrifying to you in your sin, 
is now for you in Christ an anchor for your soul in this world of trouble. A day of judgment that is to be to you a source of peace, a source of quiet confidence, a source of security that frees you from that compelling desire to justify yourself and defend yourself. As you rest assured that on that day, your heavenly Father will vindicate you before all of your enemies. It is a day that is a source of security so radical that the knowledge of it frees you even to follow Jesus' command in Matthew 5 and do the previously unthinkable, to love those who hate you, to pray for those who persecute you, to seek their salvation. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned a tweet that has taken up pretty much permanent residence in my head ever since I read it. And I hope that it lives in my head forevermore. And this tweet's made the simple observation that the Apostle Paul entered into heaven to the cheers of all those he had martyred. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That as the apostle enters into heaven, all those that he had murdered in his hateful rage against Christ and his people, when they saw Paul enter into heaven, they rejoiced to see the day of his salvation. Where does that come from? Well, it comes, of course, from a multitude of the riches that we find in the gospel. It comes from the knowledge that we have been forgiven much, so we forgive much. It comes from the knowledge that while we were in our sins still enemies of God, we were, Romans 5.10, reconciled to God by the death of His Son. But it comes from here too. The knowledge that our God will defend us and vindicate us enables us to put down our defenses and love those who hate us. The knowledge of this last day enables us to pray for them, to pray for them as Stephen prayed for Paul, the prayer that was answered on the road to Damascus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Preaching on the judgment day gets a bad rap. The hellfire and brimstone preacher is held up as a Calvinistic caricature of a religion lacking grace. But Christian, you understand that judgment day, it is, it is precious to you. The knowledge of that day when all of your enemies will stand before the throne of King Jesus and face that final recompense for their sins, the knowledge of that day is given to you to be an anchor for your soul as you go through a world of trouble. You are given a future hope so that you might have peace in the present. The knowledge that there will be a day of judgment comes to us and says to us, as Alec Motier summarized it, those who know need not fear and can rest assured that all will be well. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Let us pray. O Lord our God, 
we are so thankful for your, your patience towards us who can be so slow to believe the gospel. Oh Lord, every one of us here, we must pray. The cry of that ancient father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, drive this gospel deeper into our hearts. Help us to see the glories of Jesus as the great servant of the Lord, in whom and through whom all the blessings of God are secured for us. Help us to look back, to see how you have dealt with your people in history, to see how you deal with us now. Help us to look in, to see how the deepest longings of our hearts are answered by the gospel. But help us, Lord, also to look forward to have eyes that are fixed on that day of Christ's return when all will be well. We long for that day. Hasten that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Wrap up the heavens and the earth like a scroll. Bring in that new creation, free from sin and the effects of sin, that day when our salvation will come to its fullness. We long for it, but in this present, we ask that the knowledge of it would be an anchor to us, that we would not be buffeted here and there by the evil that surrounds us. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.